You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. Lecture 3 of The Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature by Rudolf Steiner. In the course of the two preceding lectures, we have become acquainted with certain spiritual beings that occult vision can encounter when it is directed toward the spiritual life of our planet. Today, in order to ascend into the spiritual world, it will be necessary for us to follow another path, for we can only form a correct conception of the nature of the spiritual beings of whom we have spoken, even of the planetary spirit itself, when we have observed them from another side. It is always extremely difficult to describe in the words of any language these spiritual beings visible to occult perception, because human language, at least those of the pres- languages, at least those of the present day, are only suited to the facts and phenomena of the physical plane. It is therefore only by a description from various aspects that one can hope to arrive at anything approaching what is meant when allusion is made to spiritual beings. It will be necessary for this purpose to begin today from the nature of human beings themselves and to make clear certain attributes of human nature, and we can then proceed to describe the higher beings we meet with in the higher worlds. One attribute of human nature shall be brought into very special prominence today, and that can be described in the following way. As human beings, we are endowed with the possibility of leading inner lives that are quite independent of our outer lives. This possibility confronts us every hour of our waking life. We know that as regards what we see with our eyes or hear with our ears, we have something in common with all other beings that also use their senses. As human beings, we also have a common life with other human beings, and perhaps with other beings too. People, as you know only too well, have their own special sorrows, their special joys, their troubles and cares, their hopes and ideals. In a sense, these form a special kingdom not immediately visible to the physical sight of others, a kingdom we carry through the world as an independent inner life. When we are in the same space with other people, We know what they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. We may even perhaps have an idea of what takes place in their souls by what is expressed in their faces, by their gestures or their speech. But if a person wishes to keep his or her inner life as a special world for themselves alone, then we can penetrate no further. Now if we look with occult vision into the world hidden behind the first veil of the external world, we meet there with beings quite differently organized particularly with respect to these qualities. We meet with beings unable to lead such an independent inner life as we human beings lead. We meet as a first group with those who, when they lead an inner life, are immediately transferred by this inner life into a different state of consciousness from the one they possess in the life they lead in and with the external world. Let us try to understand this. Suppose we lived in such a way that should we desire to live in our inner being and not direct our gaze to the external world, we would, simply by means of our will, immediately have to pass over into another state of consciousness. We know that without our will, we human beings do pass over 
into a different state of consciousness in normal life when we are asleep. We also know that sleep is the result of our astral bodies and our eye separating from our physical and etheric bodies. Thus we know that something has to take place in a human being if he or she is to pass over into another form of consciousness. For instance, if one says, quote, Here before me is a meadow covered with flowers. When I look at it, it gives me joy. Unquote. One does not simply on that account enter another state of consciousness. One experiences one's joy in the meadow and the flowers together with one's association with the outer world. Now, those beings that occult vision meets as the next category in a higher world change their state of consciousness every time they turn their perception and their action from the external world to themselves. Thus in them there need be no separation between the different principles of their being. They simply bring about in themselves, just as they are, by means of their will, another condition of consciousness. Now the perceptions of these beings of the next category above humanity are not like our human perceptions. Human beings perceive because an external world appears before their senses. They surrender themselves, so to speak, to this external world. The beings I am speaking of do not perceive an external world in the same way as we do with our senses. They perceive it, though this is only a comparison, rather as we perceive when, for instance, we speak or make a movement of the hand or in any way externalize our inner being in a kind of miming, when, in short, we give expression to our own nature. Thus, in a certain sense, in the case of these beings of a higher world of whom we are speaking, all their perceptions are at the same time a manifestation of their own being. I want you to bear in mind that when we ascend to the higher category of beings who are no longer perceptible by us externally, we have before us beings who perceive whenever they manifest, when they express what they themselves are, and they actually perceive their own being only as long as they wish to manifest it, as long as in any way they express it outwardly. We might say they are only awake when they are manifesting themselves. And when, of their own will, they are not manifesting themselves, not entering into connection with the world around them, another condition of consciousness arises for them. In a certain sense, they sleep. Only their sleep is not unconscious sleep like that of human beings. Sleep for them signifies a sort of diminution, a sort of loss of their feeling of self. They have their feeling of self so long as they manifest themselves externally, and in a certain sense they lose it when they cease to manifest. They do not sleep then as we sleep, but something arises in their own being like a manifestation of spiritual worlds higher than themselves. Their inner being is then filled by higher spiritual worlds. Therefore, please take note, when we direct our gaze outward and observe, we live with the outer world. We lose ourselves in it. In our planet, for instance, we lose ourselves in the various kingdoms of nature. But when we divert our gaze from what is outside, we enter our own inner being and live an independent inner life. And then we are free from this external world. When these beings of whom we speak as a first category above humanity are active externally, then they manifest themselves. They have their feeling of self, their actual self-expression in this manifestation. And when they enter their inner being, 
They do not enter into an independent inner life as do human beings, but into a life in common with other worlds. Just as we enter such a life when we perceive the external world, so they perceive other spiritual worlds above them when they look into themselves. They enter this other condition of consciousness in which they find themselves filled with other beings higher than themselves. So, with regard to human beings, we may say that when they lose themselves in the external world, they have their perceptions, and that when they withdraw from the external world, they have their independent inner lives. The beings belonging to the next higher category above humanity, we call them, generally speaking, the beings of the so-called third hierarchy, these beings, instead of perception, have manifestation. And in this manifestation, or revelation, they experience themselves. Instead of an inner life, they have the experience of higher spiritual worlds. That is to say, they are filled with spirit. This is the most essential difference between human beings and the beings of the next higher category. Third hierarchy, manifestation, spirit-filled. Humanity, perception, inner life. We might define the difference between these beings and human beings by means of a crude comparison from life. When someone is in a position of having inner experiences, that do not coincide with what he or she experiences or perceives externally, in the crudest sense, the result is a lie. In order to make this clearer, we can express a possible human peculiarity by saying, as human beings we are capable of perceiving something and yet of arousing contrary ideas in our inner being and even of giving vent to them externally, although they do not coincide with our perceptions. Through this peculiarity, a person can contradict the external world by means of an untruth. This is a possibility that, as we shall hear later in the course of these lectures, had to be given to humanity in order that human beings might come to the truth by their own free will. When we consider ourselves as we really are in the world, we must fix our attention on this quality, namely that we can form ideas in our inner life and externalize them that do not coincide with our perceptions or with facts. So long as they retain their nature, this quality is not a possibility for the beings of the higher category spoken of here. If they retain their nature, the possibility of untruth does not exist in the beings of the third hierarchy. For what would result if a being of this hierarchy wished to lie? In its inner being, It would experience something in a different way than it transmitted it to the external world. Then, however, this being of the next highest category would no longer be able to perceive this, for everything these beings experience in their inner life is revelation and immediately passes over into the external world. These beings must live in a kingdom of absolute truth if they wish to express themselves at all. Suppose these beings were to lie that is, had something in their inner being that they would so transform in their revelation that it would no longer coincide with their experience, they would then not be able to perceive it, for they can only perceive their inner nature. They would, under the impression of an untruth, immediately be stupefied, transferred into a state of consciousness that would be a darkening down, a lessening of their ordinary consciousness, which can only live in the realm of absolute truth and sincerity. Every deviation from truth would render these beings less conscious. 
if they are to be observed by occult vision, the occultist must first of all find the right way in which he can meet them. Therefore I will try to describe how an occultist can find them. The first inner experience which one goes through let me read that again. The first inner experience which one who goes through an occult development must have is the striving, in a certain sense, to subdue the inner life of ordinary normal consciousness. We can designate what we experience in our inner being as egotistic experience, as what we wish to have from the world for ourselves alone, so to speak. The more students who are developing on the occult path can bring themselves to be passive with regard to what only concerns themselves, the nearer they are to the entrance to the higher worlds. Let us take an obvious case. We all know that certain truths, certain things in the world, simply please or do not please us, that certain things affect us sympathetically or antipathetically. Such feelings with regard to the world that we only cherish for our own sake must, by one who would develop himself or herself occultly, be rooted out of the heart. One must in a certain sense be free from all that concerns only oneself. This is a truth that is often emphasized, but which in fact is more difficult to observe than one usually thinks, for in normal consciousness we have extremely few footholds through which we can become free from ourselves and overcome what concerns only ourselves. Let us consider for a moment what it actually means, quote, to be free from oneself, unquote. Probably to become free from what we usually call egoistic impulses is not so difficult. But we must remember that in the one incarnation in which we live, we are born at a certain time and at a certain place, and that when we direct our gaze to what surrounds us, our eyes rest upon quite different things from those seen by someone, for instance, who lives in a different part of the world. There must be quite different things in this other person's surroundings to interest him or her. Thus, just because we are born as physically embodied human beings at a certain time and at a certain place, we are surrounded by all sorts of things that call forth our attention, our interest, things which actually concern us and are different for other people. Because we, as human beings, are differently distributed over our planet, we are, in a certain sense, placed under the necessity of each having our separate interests, our special home upon the earth. In what we are able to learn from our direct environment, we can never, therefore, in the highest sense, experience that which sets us free from our special human interests and attractions. Thus, because we are human beings in physical bodies, and insofar as we are such, we cannot possibly, through our external perception, reach the portal leading into a higher world. We must look away from all that our senses can see externally, all that our intellect can connect with the things of the external world, everything that belongs to our own special interests. But now, if we look at what we generally have in our inner being, our sorrows and joys, our worries and cares, our hopes and aims, we shall very soon become aware how dependent our inner world is on what we experience externally, and how in a certain way it is colored by our experiences. Nevertheless, a certain difference exists. We shall be willing to admit that each one of us carries his or her own world in their inner being. The fact that one person is born in one part of the earth at one time and another person elsewhere at a different time does in a sense color our inner world. But we also experience something else 
quite different in regard to this inner world. It is certainly our special, in a sense our differentiated inner world. It bears a certain coloring, but we can also experience something quite different. If we leave the place where we are accustomed to be active through our senses for a distant place, and there meet someone who has had quite different experiences and perceptions from our own, we can nevertheless understand that person, because he or she has passed through certain troubles which we ourselves have similarly passed through, or because he or she can take pleasure in a certain sense in the things that please us. Many people have experienced that they may perhaps find it difficult to understand someone they encounter in a distant region, or to agree with them about the external world to which they both belong. And yet it may be easy for these people to sympathize with one another concerning what the heart feels and longs for. Through our inner world, we human beings are much nearer one another than we are through the external world. And truly there would be little hope of carrying our spiritual science to the whole of humanity were it not for the consciousness that in the inner being of all people, no matter to what part of the earth they may belong, something lives that can bring them into sympathy with us. Now, however, in order to arrive at something quite free from our own egotistic inner life, we must lay aside even that coloring of inner experience which is still influenced by the external world. That can only be when a person is able to experience something in his or her own inner being that does not in any way come from the external world, something that corresponds to what we may call inner suggestions, inspirations, and which grows and thrives only within the soul itself. We can so transcend our special inner life that we feel something revealed in our inner being that is independent of our special egotistic existence. This is felt by those who assert again and again that throughout the whole sphere of the earth there can be mutual understanding of certain moral ideals or certain logical ideals that no one can doubt. These can illuminate everyone, for they are imparted not by the outer world, but by the inner world of humanity. We all have one province, to be sure an arid, prosaic province, in common as regards such inner manifestation. This is the province of numbers and their relation, in short of mathematics, numbers and calculation. We can never experience from the external world the fact that three times three makes nine. It must be revealed to us through our inner being. Hence, there is no possibility of disputing this in any part of the globe. Whether a thing is beautiful or ugly can be very greatly disputed all over the world, but if the fact has once been revealed to our inner being that three times three is nine, or that the whole is equal to the sum of its parts, or that a triangle has 180 degrees as the sum of its angles, we know that it is so, because no external world can reveal this, only our own inner being. In dry, prosaic mathematics begins what we may call inspiration. Only, as a rule, people do not notice that inspiration begins with dry mathematics, because most people take dry mathematics for something dreadfully tedious, and are therefore not very willing to let anything be revealed to them by this means. Fundamentally, however, the same thing applies to the inner revelation of moral truths. If we have recognized something as right, we say, quote, this is right and the contrary is wrong, and no external power on the physical plane can make us see that what is revealed to us as right could be wrong in our inner being, unquote. Moral truths also reveal themselves in the highest sense through our inner being. 
If we direct our spiritual gaze with feeling and receptivity toward this possibility of inner manifestation, we can educate ourselves in this way. Indeed, education through sheer mathematics is very good. For instance, if one constantly devotes oneself to the thought, quote, I may have my own opinion as to whether a thing is good to eat, but someone else may be of a different opinion. That depends upon the free will of the individual. But mathematics and moral obligations do not depend on such free will. I know of these that they may reveal something to me by which, if I refuse to accept it as true, I prove myself unworthy of humanity. Unquote. This recognition of a revelation through one's inner being, if we devote ourselves to it in meditation, if we accept it as feeling, as an inner impulse, is a powerful educative force in the inner life of human beings. If, to begin with, we say to ourselves, quote, in the sense world there is much that can only be decided by free will, but out of the spirit things are revealed to me about which my free will has nothing to say, and which yet concern me, and of which I, as a human being, must prove myself worthy, unquote. And if we allow this thought to become stronger and stronger so that we feel overpowered by our own inner being, then we grow beyond mere egotism. A higher self, as we call it, gains the upper hand. A higher self that recognizes itself as one with the spirit of the world overcomes the ordinary, arbitrary self. We must develop something of this sort as a mood if we wish to succeed in reaching the portal that leads into the spiritual worlds. For if we frequently devote ourselves to such moods as have just been described, they will prove fruitful. They prove especially fruitful if we bring them as concretely as possible into our thoughts, and especially if we cherish and accept the thoughts that reveal themselves to us as true, and are yet nevertheless in contradiction to the external sense world. Such thoughts may at first be <clears throat> nothing but pictures, but such pictures can be extremely useful for our occult development. I will tell you of one such picture. I will show you by such a picture how one can raise one's soul above oneself. Take two glasses. In the one is water, in the other none. The glass with water should be only half full. Suppose you observe these two glasses in the external world. If you now pour some of the water from the half-filled into the empty glass, the latter will be partly filled, while the other then has less water in it. If you pour water from the glass which was half-filled into the glass which was at first empty, a second time, the first glass will have still less water in it. In short, through the pouring out there is always less and less water in the glass which was at first half-full of water. This is a true picture or representation as regards the external physical sense world. Now let us form a different representation or picture. By way of experiment, let us form the contrary idea. Imagine yourself again pouring water from the half-filled glass into the empty one. Into this latter there comes water, but you must imagine that in the half-filled glass, by means of this pouring out of water, there is more instead of less, and that if you poured from it a second time, so that again something passed over into the previously empty glass, there would again be more and not less water left in the glass that was at first half filled. As the result of the outpouring, more and more water would be in the first glass. Imagine yourself picturing this idea. Naturally, everyone who counts themselves today among the thoroughly intelligent would say, quote, why, 
You are picturing an absolute delusion. You imagine that you are pouring out water and that by so doing more water comes into the glass from which you are pouring." Unquote. Certainly, if one applies this idea to the physical world, then naturally it is an absurd idea. But, marvelous to relate, it can be applied to the spiritual world. It can be applied in a singular manner. Suppose someone has a loving heart, and out of this loving heart he or she performs a loving action for another who needs love. One person gives something to another person, but that person does not thereby become emptier when performing loving actions for another. One receives more, becomes fuller, and has still more, and if that person performs the loving action a second time, he or she will again receive more. One does not become poor nor empty by giving love or doing loving actions. On the contrary, one becomes richer, one becomes fuller. One pours forth something into the other person, something which makes one fuller oneself. Now, if we apply our picture, which is impossible, absurd, for the ordinary physical world, if we apply our picture of the two glasses to the outpouring of love, it becomes applicable. We can grasp it as an image, as a symbol of spiritual facts. Love is so complex a thing that no one should have the arrogance to attempt to define it, to fathom the nature of love. Love is complex, we perceive it, but no definition can express it. But a symbol, a simple symbol, a glass of water, which, when it is poured out, becomes ever fuller, gives us one quality of the workings of love. If we imagine the complexity of loving actions in this way, we really do nothing else than what a mathematician does in his or her dry science. Nowhere is there an actual circle, nowhere an actual triangle. We must only imagine them. If we draw a circle and examine it a little through a microscope, we see nothing but chalk or small specks. It can never have the regularity of a real circle. We must turn to our imagination, our inner life, if we wish to imagine the circle or the triangle or something of that kind. Thus, to imagine something like a spiritual act, such as love, for instance, we must grasp the symbol and hold fast to an attribute. Such pictures are useful for occult development. <clears throat> In them we perceive that we are raised above ordinary ideas, and that if we wish to ascend to the spirit, we must form ideas just the opposite of those applicable to the sense world. Thus we find that the forming of such symbolical conceptions is a powerful means for ascending to the spiritual world. You find this treated fully in my book, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, and How to Attain It. By this means we succeed in recognizing something like a world above us, a world which inspires us, one that we cannot perceive in the external world, but which penetrates us. If we devote ourselves more and more to these conceptions, we finally recognize that in us, in every human being, there lives some spiritual being higher than we ourselves, human beings with our egotism in this one incarnation. When we begin to recognize that there is something above us ordinary human beings, that there is a gu being guiding us, we have the first form in the ranks of the beings of the third hierarchy, those beings we call angels or angeloi. When we go out beyond ourselves in the manner described, we first experience the working of an angelic being in our own being. If we now consider this being independently, with the qualities that have been described as revelation and spirit-filled, 
If we consider this being which inspires us as an independent being, we rise to an idea of the beings of the third hierarchy who stand immediately above humanity. We may therefore describe these beings as those who lead, guide, and direct each individual human being. Thus I have given you a slight description of the way in which we can raise ourselves, to begin with, to the first beings above us, so that we can gain an idea of them. Just as each individual in this manner has his or her guide, and when we rise above ourselves, above our egotistic interests, occult vision draws our attention to the fact, quote, you have your guide, unquote, so it is now possible to direct our vision to groups of human beings, tribes and peoples. Such groups who belong together likewise have a guidance or leadership, just as individual persons have theirs in the manner described above. These beings, however, who lead whole peoples or tribes are even more powerful than the leaders of individual human beings. In Western esotericism, these guides of whole peoples or tribes who live in the spiritual world and have revelation as their perception and permeation with the spirit as their inner life and who find expression in the actions performed by peoples or tribes, in Western esotericism, these spiritual beings are called archangels or archangeloi. As individuals progress in occult development, not only may the angel who leads them be revealed to them, but also the archangel who leads the common group to which they belong may also be revealed. And then as our occult development advances still further, we find beings as leaders of humanity who are no longer concerned with individual tribes and peoples, but are leaders in successive epochs. If those who are occultly developed study, for instance, the period when the ancient Egyptian or Chaldean lived, they will see that the whole stamp, the whole character of the period is under a definite leadership. If they then look with occult vision upon what follows the Egyptian Chaldean period and direct their vision to the age in which Greece and Rome gave the tone to the Western intellectual world, they will see that this leadership changes and that above the individual peoples there rule spirits mightier than the archangels who are leaders of the peoples, who direct whole groups of peoples connected with each other at a particular time. They will see too that these beings are then relieved after a definite period by other time leaders. Just as the individual realms of the archangeloi who guide contemporary but individual groups of people are distributed in space, so do we find, if we allow our vision to sweep over passing time, that the different epochs are guided by the definite spirits of the age, more powerful than the archangels, and under whom many different peoples stand at the same time. We call this third category of the third hierarchy the spirits of the age, or archai, in the terminology of Western esotericism. <coughs> All the beings belonging to these three classes of the third hierarchy have the attributes described today. They all have the characteristic of what has here been described as manifestation or revelation and of being inwardly filled with the spirit. Occult vision becomes aware of this when it is able to raise itself to these beings. Thus we, might, we may say that when we observe what surrounds us in the spiritual world and is, as it were, around each one of us as our own individual leader, 
When we there observe what lives spiritually and rules invisibly, instigating us to impersonal actions and impersonal thinking and feeling, when we see this, we have there, first of all, the beings of the third hierarchy. Occult vision perceives these beings. To the occultist they are realities, but normal consciousness also lives under their sovereignty. Although it does not perceive the angel, it is under the angel's leadership, even though unconsciously. And so do groups of people stand under their archangel, just as an age and the people of an age stand under the leadership of the spirit of the age. Now these beings of the third hierarchy described today are found in the spiritual environment nearest to us. If, however, we went back in the evolution of our planet to a definite point of time, about which we shall learn more in the following lectures, we should find more and more that these beings, who really only live in the process of human culture, are continually bringing forth other beings from themselves. Just as a plant puts forth seed, so do the beings of the third hierarchy which I have just described bring forth other beings. There is, however, a certain difference between what the plant brings forth as seed, if we may use this comparison, and the beings that separate themselves off from the beings of the third hierarchy. When the plant brings forth a seed, it is, in a sense, a, of as much value as the complete plant, for out of it can arise again a complete plant of the same species. These beings put forth others who are separated from them as the seed is from the plant. They have offspring, so to speak. But the offspring are in a sense of a lower order than themselves. They have to be of a lower order because they have other tasks that can only that they can only accomplish if they are of a lower order. The angels, archangels, and spirits of the age in our spiritual environment have put forth from themselves certain beings who descend from the human environment into the kingdoms of nature. And occult vision teaches us that the beings we learned about yesterday as the nature spirits are detached from the beings of the third hierarchy whom we have learned to know today. They are offspring. And to them has been allotted other service than service to humankind, namely service to nature. Indeed, certain offspring of the archai are the beings who have learned to know as the nature spirits of the earth are the beings we have learned to know as the nature spirits of the earth. Those separated from the archangels and sent down into nature are the nature spirits of water. And those detached from the angels we have recognized as the nature spirits of the air. With the nature spirits of fire or heat we have still to become acquainted. Thus we see that in a sense, through a division of the beings who represent, as the third hierarchy, our union with the world immediately above us, certain beings are sent down into the kingdoms of the elements, into air, water, earth, into the gaseous, fluid, and solid, in order to perform service there, to work within the elements, and in a sense to function as the lower offspring of the third hierarchy, as nature spirits. Thus we can speak of a relationship between the nature spirits and the beings of the third hierarchy. The end of Lecture 3